Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. This episode of the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast Series is brought to you by GS3 Quality Seed, the distributor of high-quality, trusted cover crop seed brands like Nitro Radish, KB Annual Ryegrass, Super B Facelia, and TNT Vetch. You can learn more about these cover crops and numerous other species at tiltpro.com, as well as find the seed dealer nearest you. That's tiltpro.com. Today, I'd like to introduce Jason Cavadini, an agronomist with the University of Wisconsin Marshfield Research Station. Jason will be discussing interseeding cover crops. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Hello. To get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I have been at the Marshfield Agricultural Research Station uh, since spring of 2013. Before then, I was studying uh, cover crops and conservation systems at Purdue University. And uh, I originally grew up in Wisconsin and all of our family is from Wisconsin. And I really, so I wanted to be close to family, but also just really enjoyed the diversity that agriculture in Wisconsin has to offer. And so ended up back here uh, where I work at the research station, which is part of the College of Agriculture at University of Wisconsin, Madison. And um, before then I was studying uh, cover crops and conservation systems at Purdue University. Even though I'm only two hours from where I grew up, the environment is completely different here. It's just uh, a whole different set of challenges with farming here. And the farming culture and community is still very vibrant in north central Wisconsin, where I'm at. And I like to say that the reason why it's so vibrant here is because it's so tough to do. I think the farmers have just sort of developed an inherent resilience and maybe determination to make it work. So very high density dairy farming in this area still. So as I work in conservation systems and and trying to figure out how to integrate conservation practices such as no-till and cover crops into farming systems here. We're really focused on very forage-based systems because of how much dairy there is here and just livestock in general. And I'd, I'd like to add that I've always been passionate about conservation and agriculture. Um, I've have always felt a strong connection with nature going back to my days growing up on my family's farm in the Driftless area of Wisconsin in La Crosse County. And conservation has to be a big part of agriculture there because of the steep slopes and because of all the surface water. And so I've sort of brought that desire or value for conservation with me here and have been happy to see it Uh, slowly advancing in this area. Fantastic. So let's go ahead and and jump right into our topic for today. Um, Talk a little bit about the best timing for interceding cover crops. So that's an interesting topic in itself. And this last winter, as I was asked to present um, for different groups and about cover crops, I started sort of laying out the timeline of uh, interceding here for us. And what I mean by timeline is like how the practice has evolved. 
So basically, when we started interceding here, and I think you might ask something related to this later, but when we started here, uh, it was because it it was so hard to figure out how to get cover crops integrated into the systems here because we're so forage-based and because we have a shorter growing season that's bookended by sort of wetter seasons. So like a wet spring and a wet fall typically here. And so we saw interseeding as critical to figuring out how to get cover crops on more land. So when we started that, it was the sort of natural inclination was to do it at V6 because everyone who everyone was already geared up for being in the fields at V6 anyway uh, for split applying nitrogen, side dressing nitrogen. So we said, well, let's just go in at that time that we're used to doing it and interseed. And we also viewed um, the main cover crop at that time uh, was cereal rye uh, because it just seemed to work. The best was sort of the easy entry point for a lot of people. So we started uh, side or uh, interseeding cereal rye at V6. And we quickly found out that V6 was pushing the, uh, the late end of when we would want to be doing it. And that cereal rye, even as resilient of a cover crop as that was, maybe wasn't the best fit for interseeding here. And I think I, I will use that word here often because I've, I know a lot of people who work with interseeding cover crops in a lot of different parts of the Midwest, and you don't have to travel very far to have a slight variation in conditions that, you know, allow things to work a little differently. So in our forage-based system here, we are shooting for starting to interseed around V3. We say that V3 and V4 are kind of the sweet spot. Um, we do have people pushing the envelope earlier, but that introduces a whole other set of challenges. So my long-winded answer to your question is V3 to V4 ballpark is what we're currently recommending to farmers. Okay. What can be the consequences if a grower can't get into the field at that V4, V3 stage to intercede covers and the corn advances past that point? What, what can happen? So I would say that as long as you can still get through the field and it's not V6, it might be worth trying it. But just understand that the success rate is kind of diminishes over time just because you really need and it it's highly dependent on the seeding method as well if you are using some sort of interseeding unit that has that has row units that is increasing uh, seed to soil contact you can get by with interseeding a little bit later because in my experience, that seed will germinate and establish several days sooner when you are somehow getting it engaged with the soil. If you're broadcasting, which a lot of farmers in this area do, uh, you really need to try to be a little earlier. So I would say if you're starting to push V5 or V6 and you're broadcasting, just understand that the success rate is going to be a little lower unless you get the perfect environmental conditions. So I like to think of it like, uh, you know, if you're going to broadcast fertilizer, urea, for example, 
you're going to want to try to time it with the rainfall. There's no chance of rain in the forecast and it's really hot. You're going to, you know, maybe think twice of doing that. But uh, if there is rain in the forecast, you're going to want to try to time it right before that. And it's the same with broadcasting cover crops. So I, I, it is a lot of sort of considering the risk because you're throwing seed into a highly competitive environment. So you just have to kind of understand how to get some advantages over that competition. So uh, the other part of it is, is certain species such as brassicas, even some of the clovers will do a little bit better, even with a little more competition. You're not seeding those at quite as high of a rate. So if you start, if you get delayed because of weather conditions and you start approaching V5 or V6 corn, but you still want to intercede, you might just want to consider tweaking the varieties or the species in the mix a little bit. I do, okay. you know, the, um, the other thing just to mention is as we, you know, with some of the small grain species like cereal rye, uh, and our experience was there just wasn't enough time um, for that to establish when we were doing it at V6. So it would establish, but it just, we would not get the nice dense cover and the vigor that we do if we do it a little earlier. And then I guess the last part with timing is there's, there's sort of a cutoff period. So like if you get to that V6, you might be better off just saying, uh, I'm going to wait until the end of the season now it would be a wiser use of my money to wait and you could either do it as the corn starts drying down with a high boy applicator or if you have a nice fall you can drill it after harvest and for here that's typically corn silage and i understand that that's different than corn for grain um, but it just all kind of depends on how the fall plays out okay Okay. So if you are interceding cover crops in that V3 stage, when it's as early as you can, how does that earlier timing help with a better establishment of that cover crop? It just allows it to um, get a little more growth before you get complete canopy. So, um, when we were doing it closer to V6, we would get establishment, but it would be very small plants. And then it, it just seemed like um, when things canopied and they, those plants just kind of sat there, they were not very well positioned to make it once the canopy opened back up. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, the biggest thing is we're running over this stuff at harvest time with heavy silage harvesting equipment. And so we just want something to get a little more growth on it. On, you know, on the other hand, last year, we, we interceded around V3, got tremendous growth. It was the nicest looking, nice, thick, dense cover crop, um, diverse mix that we've had. And it was like, knee high the brassicas were as we walked through the corn in August and we were thrilled with how good it looked. The corn looked really good as well. It did help with um, having weeds come in, which we can touch on later 
uh, with our herbicide programs. But, but then it, it seemed like with the fall we had, I, I think that some of those cover crops almost ran their full course. And by the time we harvested, they were sort of done and almost for lack of better terms, kind of petered out by the end of the season. So we did uh, tweak our, the composition of our mix a little bit after that to see if we can uh, find something that will sort of persist after harvest. So I've got a, a million dollar question for you. And that is how does interceding cover crops then affect corn yields? So that I, I ha- I'm very confidently able to answer that question because in 2014, we put in a study that uh, we've been collecting data on. It's a long-term trial. So the treatments that we put in have stayed in the same place since then. And our goal was to look at how soil physical characteristics, so like how the soil physically improved over time as we integrate no-till and cover crops into a system. So we weren't necessarily, like our top priority with that study was not to look at yield, even though we did. So we've, we've looked at yield and uh, for our forage yield and quality over time in corn, actually forage and grain. And so uh, since 2014, that that study, we've had four corn crops in it, and we've never had a negative yield from no-till or from cover crops or from the combination of the two. So basically, as we've transitioned from conventional tillage without cover crops to no-till and cover crops, the yield has stayed exactly the same. While we haven't been able to see a yield benefit from switching to those practices, we also didn't see a yield decrease, uh, which was good. Now, the last two corn crops that we've had in that study, um, we have started seeing a positive impact from the interseeded cover crops on uh, forage quality. So corn silage actually has better digestibility when we have the interseeded cover crops between the rows. I think the reasons for that is probably a little bit beyond my skill set. I do think it's probably something biological going on. I always have someone ask when I present that data, well, is that because you're getting some of the cover crop in the silage and it's improving the quality? And I know that's not the case because of how we collect those samples. There's no cover crop in it. So long story short, over time, we've never seen a negative impact of interseeded cover crops on corn yield. That's great news. We'll be right back to the podcast, but first I want to thank our sponsor, GS3 Quality Seed, the distributor of high quality, trusted cover crop seed brands like Nitro Radish, KB Annual Ryegrass, Super B Facelia, and TNT Vetch. You can learn more about these cover crops and numerous other species at tiltpro.com, as well as find the seed dealer nearest you. That's tiltpro.com. And now back to the podcast. For growers who maybe are wanting to find a way to fit in cover crops into their cropping system, 
How does interceding help them meet that need? The biggest thing is here, you just never know what you're going to have for a fall. It, it's great. I mean, the, the biggest reason, one of the biggest reasons why we really work hard to promote no-till planting here is because our soils tend to be somewhat poorly drained. So when you consider the fact that spring is wet and fall is wet, it ends up being not a very good combination for the kind of soil we have. So we've got silt loam with the pretty, and it's fairly productive soil. We're, we're blessed to have it, but it's the subsoil is so dense that drainage is sometimes an issue. So we have, we tend to have these wet falls and it gets really hard sometimes to, it, it challenges harvest. And so harvest and then manure application tend to become the priorities and getting a cover crop planted after those ends up getting pushed to the back burner and often logistically just is not realistic because of you know everything being stacked against it so interseeding has provided a better timing logistically just a better opportunity for farmers to get these cover crops in. So as I mentioned earlier, we've just been putting a lot of eggs in that basket. We by no means have it figured out. In fact, every year we we go back to the drawing board and figure out how to increase the success rate of interseeding uh, with species selection, planting methods, planting timing, weed control programs, all of that. It, and every year we're tinkering with the system and modifying it more through research trials on the station, through a network of other people who are advising other farmers and just a lot of ingenuitive farmers who are determined to make this work. Okay. So what are the different methods available to growers for interseeding cover crops into corn? So there's a handful of farmers out there who have modified some kind of unit for interseeding, including here at the research station. So we've taken a, a side dressing, a liquid nitrogen side dressing unit, added an airflow box to it. So we are applying the cover crop seed and our side dress nitrogen in the same pass, which actually help, helps the economics of interseeding look a little better if you're able to add it to a pass that you're already doing anyway. But I would say there's only a handful of people that have some sort of row unit, although I think that is the trend in this area because people are understanding that you just get better establishment if you're able to get it somehow engaged with the soil. But I think still for the most part, most farmers in our area are applying it with some sort of broadcast unit, whether it's a simple three-point cone spreader, quite a few farmers doing that. And then on the larger acres, the bigger dairy farms in our area are, you know, they maybe own a high boy applicator or they're renting it by some egg retailer or co-op and having it applied. And almost all those services, well, I, I would say a, a good chunk of those services in our area now within the last two to three years have uh, started offering that as a service broadcasting cover crops and a good chunk of those will also mix the cover crop with 
fertilizer because they've found that they get a little better, uh, more uniform spread when they're mixing fertilizer with the cover crop. So now how can growers avoid having the, the cover crop compete with the corn for moisture and nutrients? Is there any way around that situation? From, you know, sort of the data that I mentioned earlier, like, and, and I'm, I know I'm speaking for several of my colleagues in this area as well. We're not, from what we've seen, we're not really worried about that. We're not worried about the cover crop competing with the corn. What we are worried about is the weed control programs that are available to us that allow us to intercede cover crops. Obviously, we can't have something that's gonna keep a field clean from spring through fall because it won't allow the cover crop to grow. So what we're trying to figure out is how to get the best weed control possible up to that interseeded cover crop. And that's been one of the things that we revisit every year as we go back to the drawing board. And it's the one thing that is probably still one of the bigger challenges. I guess a lot of it has to do with what I call recalibrating our eye. Nobody should go into this expecting to have their field be as clean as the kitchen table from spring through fall from weeds, because that's just not going to be an option or even a, a possibility if you're trying to intercede cover crops. But how can we keep that competition down as much as possible? So that's one part of it is just the competition from the weeds. And then the other is, and this really, I haven't seen this be an issue until this spring, but we had a fairly mild winter and we our interseeding mix from last year, so our 2020 interseeding mix had 15 pounds of annual ryegrass in it. Historically, that's been our best cover crop because it does very well in an interseeded environment and high competition and gives us a nice mat. And it's never made it through the winter until we had a mild winter and we had it make it through. And now this spring, we've had quite a bit of annual ryegrass show up in some of these fields. And so that's another thing we're gonna revisit. We already took the seeding rate in our interseeding mix of annual ryegrass. We um, knocked that down quite a bit for this year because of that. So anyway, the, uh, so we're not really worried so much about the competition from that interseeded cover crop, but I'd say the two things that we're mostly worried about are the other weeds and then what might possibly make it through the winter, which isn't really an issue unless we have problems controlling it. So what else can growers do to set a cover crop up for a successful establishment after it's been interseeded? Well, I would say just, I mean, the biggest thing is understanding what kind of conditions you need for whatever method you're using. If you have very, very hard soil and you're going to be broadcast applying it, you are really going to depend on a rainfall to get some seed to soil contact and to get that seed going. And even then, if you get a very hard rainfall, that's going to probably wash the seed. So I do know that, you know, 
for as many people that we work with are trying to till as absolute little as necessary. There is such a case where doing one pass with a vertical till before planting the corn in the spring will set that field up to be a little better conditions for interseeding about a month later than a really hard field. And, and we tend to see that in you know, some of these fields at, at the corn silage for sure, if it is corn on corn, but uh, even in some of these older perennial alfalfa or grass fields end up being very hard and uh, sometimes aren't the best conditions for uh, cover crop. Now, if you have a, a unit that has row units on it for interseeding, then that is a little bit different. So, and then again, just um, trying to make sure that the field is clean before, and that's kind of a relative term, but clean from weed pressure before interseeding. Uh, we've seen some instances where a field probably, even though you know a lot of farmers are trying to minimize herbicide applications, especially glyphosate applications as much as possible. Sometimes there's instances where it would be better to do a cleanup application before interseeding if the weeds are bad enough. And that has been one of our challenges as we've, we've been gravitating away from alfalfa as our main haylage crop and more toward a grass-based system just because the grasses are more resilient in our environment than alfalfa has been, but those are harder to control uh, in the spring. And so we are seeing the need to go back in and, and do something to control them before interceding. So have you seen if it's better to intercede a, a monoculture or a cover crop mix? So I would... I would say that for the most part, we we want to try to stick with the mixes, and there's a few reasons for that. So we, in any of our mixes that we recommend, we have brassicas in all of them, but we tend to not go higher than one pound of any of the brassicas. So like if there's uh, radish and turnips and rape, for example, we would have like one pound of each of those for a total of three pounds of brassicas. So I would say most of the mixes that we're uh, working on with farmers, we have three to five pounds of brassicas total. And then, you know, some kind of clover and then some kind of grass and maybe a couple kinds. And the reason why we like to have that diversity is because we get different root structures, we get different above ground structures. The brassicas, when you're only doing one pound per acre, that's not very dense. I mean, you can count the plants and they're spaced out, but they put out larger leaves quicker than anything else. So they are giving us the in-season ground cover that we want. And so the diversity just gives us more functionality. And then also you don't really know how every year there will be one or two of the species that thrive and one or two of them that just don't really thrive. And if you're sticking with a single species interceding, there's more of a chance that it might not work. And when you have several of them in there, there's bound to be a couple of them that do well. 
So that's the biggest reason why we do that. That's not to say that there's not a case here and there where a single species might be better. Certainly as we, if we get later in the season, like after corn harvest here, then you're starting to limit yourself to a single species interseeding because there's only a couple things that really are going to give you much function that late in the season. But with interseeding, because we've got more of the season to work with, it's better to mix it up. Okay. Well, we are out of time for today. So uh, where can our listeners go for more information about interseeding cover crops? So I'll, I guess I'll just speak for our the area that I'm in or this region, but um, University of Wisconsin has a, a Wisconsin cover crop team and they've been um, doing a pretty good job of adding new content to that website. So uh, I, that's a pretty good resource. And then uh, there's quite a few groups actually. I would just recommend people look up uh, cover crop or regenerative agriculture groups on Facebook. Um, over the past two years, those have been some of the best resources that I've seen. And what's really nice about that is you get to see uh, what's happening on other farms. And what I always say is when you learn from other farmers who are doing it, even if you're learning what not to do, you're moving up the learning curve before you even try something for the first time. Absolutely. That's what I would recommend. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jason. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm glad to, glad to talk. Once again, I want to thank our sponsor, GS3 Quality Seed, the distributor of high quality, trusted cover crop seed brands. You can learn more about these cover crops and numerous other species at tiltpro.com, as well as find the seed dealer nearest you. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com.